Crisis. Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen. Hello, I am Scott Allen, and thanks to my daughter Kate for developing the intro to the Practical Wisdom for Leaders podcast, where we offer a smart, fast-paced discussion on all things leadership. My guests help us explore timely topics and incorporate practical tips to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. If you haven't done so, please click subscribe so you automatically, seamlessly stay in the know when we publish new episodes. Likewise, please provide me with feedback. What do you like? What do you dislike? And what else would you like to know? And now, today's show. On the podcast today, we have a woman who is at the forefront of thinking when it comes to this topic of leadership. And she's not only at the forefront, but she's at 50,000 feet. And everything in between. And so I'm so I'm, I'm nervous. I'm anxious for this conversation because I think uh, it's going to go in some really, really fun directions. We have today uh, Mary Ulbeen, and she is at Texas Christian University. She is a professor of leadership. Uh, she is incredibly well published. We will place those, uh, some of her primary pieces in the show notes, and you can explore her work further. But as I said, she's at the forefront of the thinking and she's doing, she's thinking big. And we're going to take this conversation in some really cool places. But to start, uh, Mary, how did you get into this leadership thing? This, this researching leadership. I'm excited to hear that story. Well, the question really has to be, how did you get into complexity leadership? Because you don't (laughs) want me to talk about how I got into leadership. That goes way too far back. (laughs) I got into complexity leadership. Yeah. Yeah. So, I was trained in leader member exchange theory and my advisor in my in grad school is the one who developed that theory. So I learned a lot about how to do theory in grad school and beyond. But the theory basically said that leadership is about the relationship between a leader and a subordinate, yep. a manager and a subordinate or a leader and a follower. And when I went out and tried to use that in consulting when I got hired by State Farm as their educational consultant in the 90s. And when I tried to use it to teach executives, when I started teaching EMBA classes, I found that did not explain leadership at all. (laughs) I remember sitting with Jim Smith, who was the VP at State Farm, and I'd say, Jim, you need to go out and build relationships. He's like, okay. So then he did it. I get back. I met with the VPs all afternoon. And he I get called into his office. Judy Cruz says, Mary, Mr. Smith would like to see you. I said, oh, no, I'm getting fired on my first day. So I go into his office. He says, look at what I'm doing. I said, what are you doing? He said, email. I said, yeah. He said, I've been out building relationships all afternoon. I said, that is awesome. So we both felt great. So I went back for my second visit a month later, and we had lunch. And Jim said, Mary, I have a confession to make. I'm not doing that anymore. And I said, why? He said, because that's not my job. And I said, oh, so this, he taught me more than I taught him, I'm sure. This was eye-opening, and this was an experience that was transformative, because I said, I am young in this profession, I want to do work that has meaning for the world and for practice, and I am not going to spend my life, even though I'm getting famous in academia for a theory, I'm not going to spend my life researching something that doesn't have practical value. So I was on the, a quest to find out what that was. And I'll, I won't make this story too long, but then I got introduced to Russ Marion in 2001. Jerry Hunt was the editor of Leadership Quarterly, and he saw me at a conference. He said, Mary, I've got this guy. 
uh, there's a paper he's written on complexity applied to leadership, and I want you to work on it with him. And I'm standing there and I looked at Jerry and I said, Jerry, I don't know anything about this. He said, that's okay. Russ, come over here. So Russ comes over. He says, Russ, here's Mary. Mary, here's Russ. Russ, send Mary your book. Mary, go home and read it. And you guys write this paper. Wow. Wow. It was pretty amazing. He was a complexity guy. So he knew how to link people up. Oh, that is awesome. Yeah. So then I ended up on in complexity and I read the book, The Edge of Organization. It was all about complexity in the physical and biological sciences. And my head was just going off. It was, it was saying, this is everything I've been looking for in leadership. This explains everything I've been trying to understand and explain and how the world works in relationships and relationality. And it's all interactive and there's all this context stuff. So Russ and I set out on the journey to study complexity. And that was in 2001. So and that's almost twenty. Well, that is roughly almost twenty years. What what uh, what are some major twists and turns that have occurred in those couple decades? Well, Scott, let me ask you a question. Where what do you think is the story of twenty twenty? Do you think we're in complexity? Yes. Yes. We are, we, we are in multiple complexities. We are, and we are in one of the courses I'm I've now I'm starting to teach is called Leading in the Age of Disruption, which I borrowed the title from a friend of mine. Um, yeah, this is the time of true disruption and complexity. So in 2001, when we when I read Russ's book, it made sense to me. And then we looked out. I had to still figure out how to you know feed the family. Yeah. So I'm thinking, well, is this something I can invest some time in, or do I need to stick with the traditional? Because this was definitely not traditional. Yeah. And I looked out and I saw complexity everywhere and I saw it in every discipline all around me. So we knew it was coming and Russ, he was my mentor. He taught me everything I knew about it. Um, we worked, we developed a theory. We published that paper in 2007. So just to tell you how this work has been received and the fact that we didn't know we, this was going to happen. We turned the paper in on September 10th, 2001. <laughs> oh, wow. wow. <laughs> on September 11th, 2001. So Jerry was really prescient. He, he knew he was always looking to see, he knew leadership was missing something. Again, Jerry Hunt, the editor of Leadership Quarterly, and he was always trying to help us figure out how we could get there. So September 11th happens. Well, we turned the paper in and we ended up winning the best paper award that year. Hmm. We were shocked. We had no idea, but the world was, the re- leadership researchers were saying, you're onto something. You guys need to keep going. Yeah. So we dug in. It was hard. It was a, a long haul. But then in 2007, we published our big theory paper, and it turned out that one won the decennial award. <laughs> yeah, and yes. I mean, when you say it's hard, I mean, that's that's an understatement. You're talking strategy, innovation, networks. You, you're looking at a whole number of different bodies of literature, correct? It's a completely new ontology paradigm for thinking about leadership. I've heard people when I present it say, really, Mary, what you've got, because they're psychologists and they're trying to figure it out. They say, really, Mary, what you've got is a meta theory of the firm. (laughs) I'm like, oh, really? I didn't know that. But it really is big. And I think the exciting thing is it draws from physical and biological sciences. So what we've done is we've understood how the world works. And then we've applied that to human and social systems. And we're finding that the patterns that work in nature are the same that work in human and social systems. And it's fascinating. And I presented this a couple of years ago. There was a physicist in the room 
And he was sitting next to me. I saw him. He was getting ready to go to sleep. It's like, oh, this person's going to talk about leadership. I could see him just like checking out for a nap. Well, before I even got back to my office, he had written me and he said, you just presented physics. And I said, you can see that through what I'm doing. <laughs> did it there. We then figured out a way to make it work so that people could understand it. And then he could see the physics in it. So it's pretty cool stuff. Well, and so what are some of the foundational concepts people have to understand to even begin to engage in the conversation? What, what are some things that come to mind for you? I don't think anybody has a question anymore about how interconnected we are. Well, when things are interconnected, the complexity event occurs because of what it's called, what I call, or what we call rich. So the rich interconnectivity means that there are rich interactions or dynamics that occur in the inter interconnections. And when things bump up against each other, they fundamentally transform each other. Okay. So let's take the example. I was just showing in the, a webinar I just did a New York Times article that is called How the Virus Got Out. And it's a graphic. It has a whole graphic. And it shows how the virus got out. So how did it get out? Well, a bat bit an animal. That animal, at least this is, this is what they think the story is, that animal then was eaten by a human who then got sick. So thinks about the interconnection here, right? It creates a new disease by the interaction of the bat and the animal and the human eating it. And then that spreads because of interconnectivity. So, and then when that spreads in interconnectivity, it creates a pandemic. So there's another phase transition. So at first it's just a couple people sick, but as it grows, then it aggregates, it's an emergence process. And at some point it doesn't just get bigger, it morphs into something different, that's pandemic. So that's a complexity emergence event and that's happening all around us. The reason this is happening more now is because our world is so interconnected. So when you increase the base number of interconnections, then you increase the chance of a rich interconnection, which means we have more complexity. Yeah. Well, what are some other base level things we have to understand to engage in the conversation? So with that complexity, then we have to lead differently. Uh, so this means leaders have to think very differently about what leadership is, what management is, how we run organizations. And the big thing for organizations is thinking about adaptability, organizational adaptability. Yeah. Well, it's, it's fascinating because I just started a course, Mary, about two years ago on technologies enabling disruption. So I, I, this, I am not a technologist. My, my background is leadership but it's something that kind of fascinates me because here you have any number of different organizations nipping at the big, the big dogs, trying to steal their bread and butter. And in some cases doing so, right. Creating billion dollar companies. Instagram is sold to Facebook for a billion dollars with 13 employees while Kodak files for bankruptcy that same day. Right. right. Yes. And so I've become very, very, very interested in that. And I think you're exactly right. I mean, leadership and leading differently. And I, I don't even understand how some senior executives are, are conducting strategy right now if they don't have an understanding of what's happening on the margins and if they don't have an understanding of how some of these technologies are being used and how they could be used, okay. the potential. So I mean, I'm going to tell you, they are, they've learned it and they've learned it the hard way because we've been in complexity for a while. So the yeah. good is that if you looked out and you see the response to the pandemic, businesses did pretty well. 
I mean, honestly, they were pretty adaptive pretty quickly. Now, some of these were in environments that were difficult for them to survive. But for the most part, they were able to transition in large part because of technology. But this is because they've been dealing with complexity for a while. Where we saw a bad response was governments. Yeah. Governments have not had the complexity pressures. And a complexity pressure is one where you have to adapt or die. Well, our governments aren't set up to die. They, they don't have those pressures. And as a result, they don't adapt very well. Hmm. So they'll have big bureaucracies, rigidity, people not managing for the right reasons. But business organizations will die. They'll fail if they don't do this well. So I see huge changes in, in strategic leadership right now. Well, think about that. I mean, Progressive Insurance, I've had some association with them. Key Bank, another Fortune 500, literally moving tens of thousands of employees home in the matter of a week and yeah. still conducting business, right? I mean, yeah, you, you're, you're, you're more productive. Well, yes. And you, you know, you had mentioned that it's a, a threat that is the impetus sometimes for this ad- adaptation. But wow, I mean, it happened quickly. It did. And what's exciting, see, this is why everybody else is unhappy right now and miserable and suffering. And I have to admit, I'm going to tell you a little secret. I'm really in heaven because a year ago I was saying, I need to have another complexity example. And now I have so many of them. I don't even know what to do with it all. I mean, it's, it's really, I'm in the, the luxury of riches here, but what happened with executives is they were able to do that because they have, because of technology, but because they're more poised for it based on what they've learned from complexity in the last decade in particular. So if we look at the remote work, um, the technology was already there. So when you have complexity, it opens up adaptive space. Adaptive space is a situation in which you have to do something different. So it creates an adaptive challenge and it loosens up so you can get things done. So I work with, I hope Justin won't mind me mentioning him because he does podcasts too. I work with Justin Smith at Cook Children's and he was part of our first leadership cohort when we were doing healthcare leadership for that organization. And he was trying to push telehealth. So I loved him because he looked at the model and I just had the picture up and he started telling one story after the other about the picture. I'm going, wow, there aren't many people who can do that. Yeah. So he really got it and he was trying to drive it. Well, he was struggling because telehealth was not something people were amenable to. If you know doctors, if you know healthcare, if you know insurers, if you know payers, I mean, all of these things, it's like, it's not set up for it. Well, as soon as the pandemic happened overnight, Everyone's an expert in telehealth. <laughs> so Justin also is in heaven saying, see, I, you know, it's this, this is poised. This technology is poised and was just waiting for it. And I think remote work the same way. People were really ready for remote work. Most people didn't know about Zoom, but I've been using it for years. So Zoom has been preparing for this, although it's interesting to think about Zoom and how caught off guard they were. So we could talk about Zoom in a second. but um, so. What I heard from uh, from CEOs is, I never thought that we could do remote work. In fact, now I'm thinking it's so good. We why do we need all these facilities? Yes, we might get rid of facilities. And I'm hearing of others who are getting rid of buildings and facilities. And apparently, there's a really big warehouse full of Herman Miller chairs. Is that it, Herman Miller? I think so. Yeah, are they in Michigan? I think so. They they make chairs and they're really expensive. But there's a big warehouse full of them for sale because companies are all getting rid of their, not all, but a lot of them are getting rid of their facilities 
realizing this is an opportunity to do things differently. So it's pretty exciting, actually. Yeah, I have a, I have a friend in a tech company, and he mentioned on a, in, a, in passing on a phone call that that they had already planned to not renew significant pieces of their real estate, their leases, right? Yeah. So, well, you, okay, so now think about the leadership implications of that. Yeah. So now you're a leader and you have to manage all these people and they're not around. You don't see them. Yeah. Or my students who are getting ready to go graduate, they are never going to probably step foot in some of these organizations. So they have to start jobs, start their professional career, not seeing the people that they'll be working with. And this is more general. I mean, some people always did that. That's a big change. It is. So I'm going to run something by you and and let's see how you react to it. I, I had a student who, who works in a Fortune 500, and he has been leading remotely for six years, his team. And when this happened, I reached out to him and said, so tell me about this, Mike. Tell me about this space. And, and he said, you know what? It's the same what, but it's a different how. Yes, that's right. Which was kind of interesting. Do you agree with that? What do you think? I think that's a really cool way of putting it. Isn't it? That's exactly right. But I, I also think the fact that he's saying it's the same what means that I think that leadership has morphed hmm. because in the old days, that wouldn't have worked. If you have hmm. a kind of control, hierarchical, really managerial, authoritarian mindset, that's not going to work. But business and leadership has already changed to the idea that we need to build on relationships. Yep. So it's about relationships. It's about empowerment. That's been happening for a long time. And employees taking more responsibility. And I like to talk about this as co-leadership as well or followership where leaders, individuals together, leaders and followers co-create leadership. That's already out there and more people know it. So I think he's probably describing that and then saying the challenge of the remote is the how. I think that's right. So Mary, I, I have, let's say we have a magic, a magic teleportation device that brings you to Delaware right now. And and you are you are placed into the president elect's uh, space, and you have an hour with with him. And this isn't a, this isn't a a commentary on politics right now. This is a commentary on how do you, regardless of who you are as a leader, think about whether it's uh, social unrest, whether it's uh, digitization in the middle class, globalization, whether it's COVID-19, based on your framework and your mindset, I'm so excited to hear what you'd say to Joe. And you never know where these things go, right? Who knows? You may end up, and then we'll, you'll owe me a glass of wine at our next conference if, if you end up in Joe's office counseling the president, okay? Is that a deal? That sounds great. Okay, so let me, to answer this, I want to give you a little bit of background to say that yeah. when 2016 happened, People started to understand, people in the U.S., but also in the world, started to understand complexity more. So if I were to backtrack complexity, the first time I saw it shift. So in 2001, we saw it coming. In 2010 is the first time I saw it really shift. And that's because we had had the the global financial crisis. So here we call it the Great Recession. But around the world, it's called the GFC or the Global Financial Crisis. That was a complexity event. And at that time, IBM put out a report of CEOs and it said, the number one threat to organizational um, survival in the future is complexity. And we as leaders don't know what to do about it. Wow. And that was very accurate. They didn't know. They learned really quickly. 
Then about 2014, I saw another shift. So if in 2010, complexity, let's say the tower fell over, it collapsed and it's on the ground. And around 2014 or so, it was like the foundations beneath it started to crumble. Mm. So now we're seeing real deterioration of the foundations of what we knew about leadership or stability in the world. And that was happening in large part because of social media. So then in the U.S., you get Trump in 2016, which is another complexity event. That's a disruptive force. Yeah. He was hired as a disruption. And interestingly, hired, he was elected. Um, interestingly, the disruption that, that the base or the individuals who voted him in were against globalization. It was, in, it was make America great again. Let's go back. Let's go against globalization. Let's go against all of these people coming in. So they, in many ways, they were really talking about going against complexity. They were saying, let's slow this down. We don't like this complexity stuff. We want to keep our towns the way they are. We want to keep our industries the way they are. And we don't want people coming in who are going to take our jobs. And this globalization thing has been a bad deal for us. We're, yes, our community is our community. Our community is decimated, right? That's their perception or their lived reality. So what they did was they brought in what they perceived as the greatest disruptor they could. And I heard people describe that as we're lobbing a bomb or, you know, I just want to cause chaos. So they really were so sick of it. They weren't even going to complexity. They were going to chaos. They didn't want order because they were really trying to get attention. So Trump was trying to do that, but Trump has his issues around Trump. So um, did some things got done, but didn't really happen in the way that I think people had hoped. I think that it caused um, probably some chaotic disruption, but not really anything that's beneficial. It didn't cause adaptability, except on some issues. So now Biden comes in and he has this situation that he's got to face in that he's trying to calm this down. So take it from chaos more to complexity. If you think of three zones, there's a chaos zone, a complexity zone, and an order zone, right? So... He's trying to bring it from chaos down to complexity, what he's perceiving or others are perceiving as that. So his challenge is he has to figure out how to enable an adaptive process. And what we found in our work is that the core of leading for adaptability is enabling the adaptive process. The adaptive process occurs when there's a push for novelty and there's a push for stability. Those are, that's a polarity. They, in organizations theory, they talk about it as ambidexterity, Um, It's a polarity so or a paradox. So these two things push against each other. Mary, do we have a polarity in – would it be fair to say there's a polarity in rural America and urban America? That's a generalization, but is that in the neighborhood? Let me put it this way. I don't know that I would call that a polarity because a polarity is two things that are opposite, that are in tension and can't come together. So I wouldn't call it a polarity, but I would call it a tension. Okay. And so what happens in the polarity between the push for novelty and the push for stability is it generates tension. And that's another word for that is stress or yep. another word for that is conflict. Yep. So when you've got that tension that's occurring, you've got the conflict. What you have to do is understand how to use the tension, how to enable the conflicting, these conflicting ideas, get them to push up against each other, but not just in conflict. They can't stay separate. They have to connect. Yeah. So how can you engage the conflicting in a way that you find connecting in it? And it's that 
process of conflicting and connecting that we call adaptive space. And that's what generates adaptability and adaptive outcomes. So I've, I've said this to my wife on walks. <laughs> so I'm going to now ask the expert if, if, this is, if this is relevant. But it's kind of interesting because I've been, I've been thinking a lot. I've said it a few times in conversations with friends. What is the type of leadership that works above all of this noise? What's the leadership that works above CNN, MSNBC, the media? What's the type of leadership that works above this and gets us unstuck? That's exactly the right question. Yeah. And, and so, so something that comes to mind for me is that if, and I said this to my wife on our walk, I said, if Joe Biden comes in, puts only liberals and pushes only a liberal agenda, we will not get unstuck. And, and if, if he has tension on, on the left and a little bit tension on the far right, and if we can get sane individuals to come together and work those issues in the middle, then that might have, because all you're going to do is alienate and piss off 70 million people now. And how do we move past that, right? It has to be a different way. So I think of that, you know, the classic team of rivals with Lincoln, right? Yes, that's right. So you've got it. I mean, you just described it. So essentially what has to happen now, that, that leadership that you're asking about, that's what we call enabling leadership. So what it does is it enables the adaptive process or it enables adaptive space that allows for things to go forward, to progress. So you can't keep the the polar opposites. If we want to say left and right, right now, left and right are considered. So don't just say rural, urban. I would say left and right have positioned themselves. They've intentionally been positioned that way. And that's politics because they're interests. Some people have an interest in keeping that divide. Yes. And we just hope that they can get the divide big enough. And then what they do is they use tags and attractors to attract to their group. And then they try to keep that divide going so that they can win. And then when they get in, they do they advance their interest. Yep. That's not beneficial to our country in any no. way, shape, or form. No. And we didn't used to have this. Well, we haven't at times, but we're supposed to have a government that works together. So the bottom line is Joe Biden has to come in and he has to and enable that conflicting and connecting, enable the ideas from the different perspectives to clash together, but find a way to connect it. Now, the key in the model that we've got is that's the adaptive space, but to get new order or adaptability, you have to get it into what we call the operational system. Yep. So the challenge isn't just creating the space for the ideas to conflict and connect. It's how do you get it converted into new order, which means new laws, new systems, et cetera. Yeah. And it's codified, so to speak. Yes. And that's the, go- the role of the government. And they have put stakes in the ground that they're not going to do that. So what do you do if they're not going to do that? Well, Joe has his challenge and that's his big challenge is how to get them to work together. If you read the news, you see people saying, well, he's worked with Mitch in the past and maybe Mitch will work with him through this. I don't know. I, I said this also. I said, I, I'm, I'm, confident that the four of them, you know, minority, majority group of four doesn't seem to work well. (laughs) No, but I think they could. I think the issue is you ask the role of media. Media is in social media, not just the mainstream media, but all of this communication that's creating echo chambers is working against this. So we can't really get there until we address the core problem, which is the individuals who are intentionally trying to create divides. And we already know there are foreign forces that's in their interest. And we know that there are other political forces that's in their interest. So we have to diffuse that. 
we have to stop the tag that, so let me just explain tag. So in complexity, a tag is a catalyst for um, an, a, an event. It's a, a symbol. It catalyzes some kind of movement. And so Trump used his mega hat. Yep. I, I'll put the picture up. Mega. That's a tag and it's, attract, it's an attractor and it brings different groups together. So what Biden has to do is diffuse that, diffuse yep. the tag or the attractor that's causing that group to come together and then be polar opposite, if you will, the left and the right of each other and find a way to create the system for connecting. That's not an easy one. No, it's not an easy one. And, and again, if, if he's not creating the space for at least where we can come to agreement on certain issues to get some small wins, to get some energy, to build a habit of working with one another. But you're right. I mean, with, with the, the mainstream media, the, the language is winners, losers, the inflammatory language that we are consuming, that we are fueling, right? It's, it's, it's us. We are clicking and we are making them very, very wealthy through our clicks that's right. It's, it's just, it's so interesting to think about what works above all of that. And to your point, I love that word diffuses that energy because it's an energy, right? It's an, it's a field, it's palpable and it's causing people to act. This is why the Democrats went for Biden because they knew they didn't want they didn't want to go moderate. They wanted to go. I mean, there was a group that wanted to go left progressive. But if you go left progressive in this environment, all you're doing is if you do manage to get in, which we now know they aren't going to be able to get in, they don't have the numbers, then you just create another polarity. And then the other side takes over again. And you're going back and forth. This yeah. is never, ever going to work for us. Yep. So that's why the Democrats said, all right, we see the situation we're in. We'll put a moderate in there and let let him try to to lead from the middle, but that means there has to be cooperation from the other side. And that's, that's the question. Will they cooperate? Yeah. And then, and then I do wonder, I do wonder if, if our system is designed, I mean, obviously it is, it's designed in a way that uh, is not serving us well any longer. And and shifting that is, that's the codification that you spoke of. And wow, a friend of mine from Canada the other day, this has just stuck with me. He said, you know, in my country, uh, when we turn 18, we just, we just go vote. And you just, you know, I don't know why it's so hard in the U.S. Right. And yes, <laughs> right? We know there are interests that try to make it hard. Yep, yep. So they, I, think, I think our founders were brilliant in how they set up our government, but I think it's time for an update. Yeah. And, I, you know, I kind of get tired of the Democrat, Democrat, Republican, right, wrong, this, that, because I think you are exactly right. It doesn't matter who the actors are until another force, in, like you said, brings people, it creates that space to work the middle, to get some energy to move forward. It, it doesn't, it's just, it's just going to go back and forth like a ping pong. So it's, it's almost, I don't know how to explain it better than that. <laughs> I will also say this, if you were to sit people down and let, if they really listened to what they wanted. So let's say you did an experiment and you brought a person in and you laid out what they were saying without the inflammatory words. And then you didn't tell a person if that was a Democrat or Republican. Yes. I think you're much closer than you think. Yes. But Again, there are 
media forces, other forces, particular leaders who it's in their interest to incite this. Yep. And we as a country need to understand that that is happening. I mean, we know that we have a lot of, of um, different communication that's occurring in the rural community from in the cities. Yep. And something has to be done about that. But I, the one thing that's got me more positive is that I do think there's a lot of local action happening. So I see forces happening at local levels. And if we can get more local change and local adaptations, then that will help. Well, Mary, let's, let's, let's pause there because listeners heads are spinning and that's fun. That's a good place to pause. I I can't thank you enough. I always, I always close these out by saying, you know, what are you reading? I ask guests what they're reading, what they're listening to. And it could, you know, David Day was watching a, a, a Danish noir kind of TV series called The Bridge. And Ron Riggio, I think, was watching, you know, Ozark. <laughs> so it could be something that you're just reading for fun or streaming for fun. But uh, what, what's been keeping you busy otherwise? Gosh, there's so many shows on Netflix or HBO. I mean, we've all been quarantined, so I can't even come up with one. There are so many of them. Yes. uh, For me, what I've been doing is I have been watching all of this because in so many ways, what's happening in the world is blurring into into the work that I do. And I don't know that I have a good separation of personal and, and work right now because I'm following complexity and I'm just pulling everything off I can to sh- try to find examples to help people see it and then really motivated to try to figure out how I can help people understand these dynamics. Yeah. The, the scary thing is the dynamics can be used for bad. So I think I've been holding back because I don't want to help people do this for bad. I want to make sure that if we get these dynamics out that people use, I, I want to try to at least hope that, that they use them for good. Yeah. Because, you know, we could have a whole nother fun conversation about what's the process of training or developing or, helping people shift their mindset to seeing the world through this lens. Yes. That's that's a whole nother puzzle. There's a mindset shift and then there's some different tools that mm-hmm. people need. And so I'm putting that together now. So that's fun. Mary, thank you for the work you're doing. I love it. I went after Joe, after your meeting with Joe, give me a call, <laughs> let me know how it went. And then, and then I'll say, thank you for helping our country proceed forward. I'll just make sure you send this podcast to him. I will. I will do that. (laughs) Be well. Thanks for all you do. He has nothing else to do other than to listen to our podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Mary. Have a great day. Thank you. What a incredibly thought-provoking conversation with Dr. Ulbeen. She's an incredible thinker. You know, there's, there's, it's no surprise that she has been named uh, one of the most influential thinkers in leadership since 1990. She is at the top of her game, doing incredible work. And uh, a couple things come to mind for me. One, Joe Biden, if you're listening, president-elect, call Dr. Ulbeen. Give her a call. She's got some incredible ideas. I think some important ideas. I think some of the correct ideas. If we as a country, in the United States specifically, are going to move forward, but other global leaders can learn from these lessons as well. And second is a message to all of you who are listening. Thank you for listening. I would encourage you to explore some of the articles that I have placed in the show notes uh, written by Dr. Ulbeen or co-authored by Dr. Ulbeen. They are incredible. They will have you thinking and they will take your own exploration to new places. Take care, everybody. Be well.
You have been listening to the Practical Wisdom for Leaders podcast. If you liked what you heard, please share it with others and let them know what we're up to. And one last quick reminder to click subscribe so you know when we publish new episodes. And of course, we'd love to hear your feedback. You can stay in touch with me by visiting www.scottjallen.net or any number of social media platforms. Be well, be safe, and make a difference wherever you are on this beautiful planet. And now, here's Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro. You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.